Welcome to EO Audio, the carnivorous podcast of the East Oregonian. It's Wednesday, December 16th, 2015, and hey, it's science with Sarah Gardner. Sarah will talk Eastern Oregon wolves with one of the top biologists on the subject in the state. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Hey, It's Science. I am Sarah Gardner. On this episode, I will be discussing wolf ecology with the wolf program coordinator for the state of Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife, uh, Russ Morgan. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Russ. Thanks for having me. This is really great. Uh, So I just wanted to go over a little bit of your professional background and how long you have been the wolf program coordinator. Right. So I've been the wolf program coordinator since 2006, and, and really that followed the the development of our wolf plan that we operate under in the state of Oregon. So our plan was finally adopted in 2005, or first adopted in 2005. And in one of the first tasks then, of course, was to put somebody in place to implement the plan. And that's essentially my, my primary duty is to implement a policy decision or direction that our agency has, has made. So 2006 is when that started. Uh, what was the significance of that year, 2006? Uh, well, again, it, it primarily was just the, the we had we had, we, had, we had adopted a, a new plan, and so really, uh, while we didn't have wolves or a known population of wolves at that time, it was really the the, the first. I was the first person then to take that ad- newly adopted plan. And really try to put that plan onto the ground. So 2006 is when we really started to implement, if you will, uh, our wolf plan. I see. So before you worked with wolves here in Oregon, what did you do prior to Yeah, I worked, uh, well, I'm, I've worked for the agency for 28 years. And, uh, and before I was uh, the wolf coordinator, I was a district wildlife biologist in Hepner, Oregon. So a little town south of Pendleton and in Worked in three counties there, and really, as a district wildlife manager, you're, you're dealing with a variety of, of wildlife species. Some of our large carnivores, our game species, and also a variety of non-game species. So a little more of a jack-of-all-trades type of a position. This position here, of course, is pretty specific to one just species wolves. and just wolves. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> so could you talk about the story of the reintroduction of gray wolves into at least the western United States and how your position ties into that story? Sure. Well, yeah, wolves were reintroduced in 1995 and 1996, uh, not into Oregon. Oregon has never never re- brought wolves into our state, but they were reintroduced into Idaho and into, of course, Yellowstone. And it was that northern, what we referred to as the northern Rocky Mountain wolf population that became sort of the nucleus population as it expanded, uh, uh, it, it reached Oregon. And uh, long before my position was created or the wolf plan was adopted, uh, back in 1999, a, uh, a wolf that very famously became known as B-45 entered our state, and that was the first known collared wolf that had come to Oregon from that reintroduced population. So really that was kind of a catalyst or a starting point for trying to understand 
and, and make decisions on how we would manage wolves in the future, how, what would happen in the future when more wolves came from, from that reintroduced population. At that time, experts told us uh, pretty clearly that there would be more, and, and of course, we've since seen that as, as, right. as well. They, they were right. Um, yeah, so, so the reintroduced population uh, uh, really then became the, the starting point, and it was just a matter of a number of years, much as it has been with Washington and even now is with California. Uh, you know, when, you, when your neighbor state, regardless of where it is, has, has wolves, uh, sooner or later, you probably you will. expect that to happen yeah. to you as well. Yeah. So what happened to then uh, wolf number B45 after they entered Oregon? Yeah, well, it was a pretty exciting time. Obviously, there was a generated, uh, as as all things wolf tend to do, it generated a tremendous amount of uh, of anxiety by some, fear by some, and, and, uh, and uh, just excitement by some. Uh, those that enjoy or wanted wolves, you know, uh, I think wanted us to bring more in uh, to keep it company, and of course, other people wanted that wolf gone. At the time, there, it, so it was quite a controversy. And at the time, um, because we didn't have really a management approach or direction it set in place, um, the decision was made to capture that wolf and remove or take it back out of Oregon and, and take it back to Idaho. Incidentally, B forty five did was successfully captured. Uh, returned to Idaho, and that wolf lived its its days in in Idaho. Uh, and of course, it's now now that wolf is long gone. So, um, the, really, the importance of that you know any one wolf from a population perspective doesn't have a, a huge importance. But the importance of that particular wolf is it really served as a wake up call for for Oregonians, for Oregon's Wildlife Management Agency, us, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in this case also, because they're federally listed, it served as sort of a wake-up of, well, now that wolves are able to come to Oregon and will undoubtedly come, you know, how are we going to manage the species in the future? So then a management plan <clears throat> was put into place. Does it reflect pretty much the same plan that was put in in Idaho, uh, when they introduce these wolves or reintroduce well, these wolves, well, not really. Most management plans uh, for wolves are based uh, in part on other management plans. So, the states that have wolves uh, tend to to have experiences and knowledge and understanding, practical application of, of wolf management on the ground. And so our plan definitely is reflective of some of those. Mm -hmm. uh, one plan that ours really closely resembles at the time when it was at first adopted was Montana. We used a lot of Montana's information, and and the idea that with that was not to reinvent, you know, reinvent the wheel, if you will. There's a lot of experience in those neighboring states on managing wolves and how how they would function on our landscape. Mm -hmm. the, the unknown, however is those are different landscapes. So right. as the wolves came to Oregon, we have a different uh, juxtaposition of, of public land, private land, developed areas, wild areas. And so because of that, you know, there's a lot of it we're going to have to sort of learn on our own. But but the plan sort of became a, a framework or a skeleton, if you will, for, for what we might expect. And interestingly, I, I have to say that Wolves, the success of wolves to date in Oregon, they have been very successful, and that success has really tracked that plan. Remember, you know, it's pretty fascinating that that uh, our plan was created by a group of people in a state that had no wolves. We're one of the first states uh, 
to create a wolf plan to decide how we're going to manage this species. It's very sometimes difficult species to manage before yeah. we ever even had wolves. Seems and a little so daunting. It was a little <laughs> daunting, uh, and and I think uh, the people that crafted our plan should be quite proud that in fact things have tracked uh, uh, very, very well, very closely to what they predicted. So oh, That's great. So yeah. it was a successful plan. Do you know if um, like the state of California or Washington are implementing similar plans to Oregon's? Or there, is it um, yeah, quite uh, different California's well? in the process of developing a plan now that they have a, a small and, and undoubtedly growing population <laughs> of wolves. Sure. Um, and, and Washington, of course, followed suit also from after Oregon and developed their plan and, and adopted it after Oregon's. But but yeah, all of these plans have similar, you know, wolves are, uh, wolves don't change at state lines. So a lot of these, these plans do have similarities. They don't just get into California and be like, I'm going to behave completely differently now. No, no, I don't think so. <laughs> you know, we may plan for them differently and, and we may think about them differently from a, from a, a social perspective, but you know, the biology of the wolf stays the same. Um, could you discuss then some of the changes that we've seen in the wolf populations in and around at least Eastern Oregon in the past few decades? Yeah, well, uh, you know, in 2008 was when we first documented the first reproduction, the first breeding wolves in, in Oregon. And that was in the farthest northeast portion of the state in the Winaha unit. That was in t the summer of 2008. So up until that point in time, uh, you know, for a, the from 2006 to 2008, we had a few uh, few incidences, uh, uh, I guess, of, of individual wolves, reports, uh, uh, a few tracks on our part where we would follow a single set of tracks. Undoubtedly, these were dispersing wolves, um, which is really how it all starts. It was right. dispersers that, that travel from other core populations to un these, these new areas. And so we were seeing that, but it really wasn't until 2008 until we we documented reproduction. And from that point in time, so that was really the, you know, I, I consider that when we saw successful reproduction of wolves was really when we, we started a population, if you will, as opposed to just these, these, these This dispersal event, basically. Yeah, exactly, because dispersals don't always end up successful. A right. lot of dispersals sort of fizzle out, if you will. They they travel out, get in areas, they, they live out their life or die, mm -hmm. and don't really amount or add to the overall population. And so once we stop successful reproduction, you know, that's really when we considered wolves now are reestablished at a low level in Oregon. That occurred in 2008. We then started counting wolves in 2009. Mm -hmm. So really, uh, uh, I think it's quite fascinating that all of the growth has happened quite that's pretty rapid. Uh, quite rapidly yeah. in the last uh, six and seven years. Wow. So were the wolves that you, the first breeding pair that you found in 2008, were those collared wolves? They or? were not, no. We actually just howled those up. We, we had some sign. We had some suspicion they were there. And so we were conducting pretty regular howl surveys, which is one technique. A howl survey? Yeah. Essentially, oh. we, we <laughs> drive around the forest in the in night, and, and we stop at periodic intervals, uh, kind of predetermined intervals, and uh, we howl into the dark. Oh my gosh, I love and, this! And if you're you're ever so lucky, and you're in the right spot and within earshot, you might get a howl back <laughs> because wolves, just as a, oftentimes a domestic dog uh, might start howling or, mm -hmm. or barking when a fire engine goes by, wolves have this, a similar response. Uh, so they, they will howl. They will howl back in return. In different sounds. 
So is it you howling or is it a recording of a howl? Well, we've used both. Okay. Uh, my experience has been that we have more and, and better return howls with with natural voices than recorded oh, no kidding. voices. So in, in my case, we, we just howled with, with okay. our voices. I love yep. it. So I'm sorry, back to the, the breeding wolves. So you found their den or their their area that they were living in 2008. Yeah. Have you been, or did you collar them at the time or did you just kind of follow their movements? We didn't. Um, Collaring is, is something that requires, uh, it's not an easy task to do. And so really that was just the starting point. Just the, you know, really when, in the beginning when you, when you don't know if you have wolves or if you have breeding wolves, you're really trying to just establish presence or absence. Presence of wolves was at that point that was our goal okay. at that time. Once we established that we have presence, then later on, you know, we worked to put put collars on these wolves, and in fact, did collar that pack and have collared several individuals out of that pack since. So that pack, interestingly, is, so it is our oldest known pack in Oregon. We in the Wanaha to, unit, it's the Wanaha pack. The yep. Wanaha pack. Yep, and uh, and it is still there today. Do you have estimates on how many wolves are in this pack? It's varied. Uh, varied from uh, less than six to uh, more than ten. So, yeah. Yeah. Right now, we don't. We, we count wolves once a year, and those counts are going to begin uh, begin shortly. So, over the next month or month and a half. And so, uh, we'll know a little more about what that pack has uh, soon, I hope. So, what have the primary challenges been in establishing wolves in this area? Well... You know, most challenges with wolves uh, really don't have to do directly with the wolves. It has to do with the social ch challenges and aspects of wolf management. You know, wolves uh, wolves are a difficult species. You know, they, they're an interesting animal, but they also can cause real problems. Um, certainly wolves as a, as a, as a large carnivore, uh, they can interact and, and conflict with, with another thing that we do on, on much of our landscape, and that is raise livestock. And so wolf and livestock interactions uh, don't always turn out the best for the livestock. Right. And, and those are real problems. And, of course, uh, that, that then itself sort of it becomes a big part of the program that we operate. Uh, realistically, much of what we what we do from a management perspective has to do either directly or indirectly with the issue of livestock depredation or livestock damage by wolves. So that's so. a large part of your management plan? It is. It is. Yeah. Has that been successful along with the other terms that you put in your management plan, working with like people and social problems with these wolves? Yeah, well, I suppose uh, in a large, uh, for, for a large part, it depends on who you talk to, okay. whether it's successful. <laughs> I think overall it has been. You know, the mm -hmm. the goal has been conservation of wolves, growing a wolf population mm -hmm. uh, per law and per our plan. But at the same time, while that was occurring, um, uh, addressing these areas where we do have problems. So that's really the key to wolf management is being able to realistically address the problem areas. Mm -hmm with a variety of techniques up to and including lethal control of problem wolves at the same time promoting conservation measures so that we can continue to grow our population and that's really that balancing act then that state agencies like mine are are, are tasked, are tasked with, with yeah. and, and and that's what we do so could you discuss briefly some of the um, ecological services that or ecosystem services that wolf pro wolves provide for 
um, let's say, the Blue Mountains. Right. Well, you know, it's uh, in a large part, I suppose, it's yet to be seen because we've been a number of generations without wolves. Um, at the same time, we recognize that wolves are a part of Oregon's native wildlife fauna. And so, you know, inherently, we consider them valuable uh, uh, just for that reason alone. You know, there's there's a lot of, of uh, a lot of pieces to our our system that probably have are, are the way they are in large part because of wolves. You know, an example might be uh, uh, you know why do elk have eyes that sort of bulge out the side of their heads? You know, well, it's so they can see not just forwards or sideways, it can even detect things behind them really? a little bit easier. And, you know, my guess huh. is is uh, that has a lot to do with predators, large, and, and wolves right. are a part of that. You know, why do cougars jump up a tree when a dog uh, barks at it? You know, that probably has to do with 10,000 years of living with wolves. And right. so a lot of this system that we enjoy now, our wildlife and, and ecology that we enjoy today, probably has a lot to do with with you know many hundreds and thousands of years of of uh of, of, of evolving together yeah of having having wolves so we've been without them uh for a few generations mm -hmm. you know in the bigger picture that's a short period of time but but from our perspective it's difficult to know how things will change because of wolves in some areas there is some science that that discusses the idea or has introduced the idea that wolves sort of have a a, 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 a top-down biological effect on, on the species that it depends on and other species as well, such as in Yellowstone, you know, ideas that, that, that trees, uh, uh, regeneration of certain types of trees, you know, might, might be affected by having wolves on the landscape. So I think some of that is yet to be seen. We do have a different landscape in Oregon. Right. You know, we have a landscape that is not Yellowstone. We have a landscape that has a lot of livestock uh, grazing throughout much of our the same areas that wolves are. So how wolves will interact with all of these things with the the other uh, additions that we've made, such as livestock, it's really it's it's really a bit of an unknown. It's yet to be determined. Yeah, it's interesting though because you know this will provide a lot of information about how we changed things by removing wolves. And kind of how they'll readapt when they come back. Exactly, you know, and you know, I, I'm not sure. Uh, there's there's a lot of discussion about wolves as a keystone species. I'm not sure that I follow in uh, with that. You know, I do. Do we need to have wolves for this system? I'm not sure. Right. Um, but I but I am sure that because they were native, there is value to that species because they were here because our system was was created in a, with that species in place, that having them back uh, certainly isn't going to harm the system. Also, you know, the, the other aspect that we have to then consider is, is we also place demands on the landscape. Not only do we have livestock, but we depend on the same species very much that, that wolves do. Right. So we depend on deer and elk. We hunt them for, for food and for sport. And wolves, of course, can be a competition to that. So the so wolves aren't re-entering our landscape. Uh, they're not re-entering the same landscape that they once occurred in. It's a different landscape now, and it's a very human-dominated landscape. I agree with that for sure. It'll be really cool, though, to see what happens in the next decade or so. Um, so there was recently a meeting held uh, 
to discuss the endangered species listing status of the gray wolf here in Oregon. And I just thought that we could chat about what the outcome of that meeting was. Right. So when our population uh, reached a, a, a level that we refer to as our conservation objective, uh, and that occurred in January of this year, um, that level was four breeding pairs for three consecutive years. Of course, we have more than four breeding pairs, but that was the, the level then that, that took us into another phase of our plan. Our plan is built on phases. It was four breeding pair for the entire state of Oregon? Is that uh, right? For Eastern Oregon. Just, just for Eastern Oregon, Oregon. Where, okay. where they primarily are. Okay. That took us into what we call phase two of our plan. And one of the, the things that phase two called for was an evaluation of the listed status, listing status, the state listing status uh, of wolves in Oregon. So that re- process began in April. It concluded in November, just just last month. And essentially, the outcome of it was wolves were de- taken off the list of endangered species for the state of Oregon. They're still federally listed in a part of Oregon, but they're they're not state listed at this time. Okay. Yeah. So the process then was was really a process of evaluating five criteria, ESA criteria, and and it's not a process. I think it's important for people to understand it's not a process of saying how many wolves is enough. Delisting wolves wasn't wasn't a statement that this is enough wolves. What it's a statement of is that it met five very distinct criteria, and the idea is is that those the protections afforded by ESA by endangered species status are no longer necessary to continue. Uh, uh, a, po- a healthy population of wolves, which includes growth of that population. So our commission made the decision in early November uh, to delist them. So how would protections then change? Uh, actually, very little. Wolves are still protected in Oregon. They're still protected in eastern Oregon. And they're delisted across Oregon, of course, um, but protections are still in place. So actually, from a protective, what people can do with wolves because we were already in phase two in eastern Oregon, the protective status didn't change at all. Wolves are wolves are as protected today as they were the day before they were delisted. Um, what delisting does, though, it's part of it's certainly part of a progression, going from no wolves several years ago to this stage of of the listing status. Certainly, as the population builds in the future, uh, more of a management approach. That would be phase three of our plan. And so it's an important part of that whole progression, even though right now the delisting doesn't have a a great deal of effect. There's not going to be any wolf hunts uh, right now. It doesn't change really how we manage the species right now while we're in phase two. And they're also still federally protected as well. In in Mm -hmm. the the western three quarters of Oregon, the eastern 25% of Oregon, which is really that line from Pendleton to John Day, to Burns and South, east of that highway, mm-hmm. uh, they're not federally listed. So they have no okay. listing status by either. West of that line, they are still federally, they are still federally listed as endangered, yes. Are they still uh, federally listed in Idaho as well? Uh, no, they're not. No, they're not. Yep, they're not, not listed at all. So I wanted to then maybe discuss a little bit about the five criteria that you used when you were evaluating the state listing status. Yeah, so... Um, there, there's two of the five criteria that probably became the, the largest and most complex parts of the evaluation. Um, they're really about 
the, the amount of area or the importance of the amount of area that the wolves occur in. Is that enough area? And then the second part is, is, uh, is just the viability, if you will, uh, the chance that the population could fail. Really, when you're evaluating listing protections, what you're doing is you're, you're, it's a risk assessment. And you're assessing if you lift these protections, what is the risk that the population could fail, that there could be reproductive failure or whatever type of failure in the population could in fact fail. And that's really what our assessment was about. And so those are the first two criteria then. The other ones are, are things like there's adequate habitat, uh, there's adequate protective measures in place, which because of our plan there are, things like mm -hmm. that. Those were pretty easy to address, really. The first two then were the more complex. Right. And they were, the, the wolves, you know, primarily occupy the northeastern portion of the state. And they also have, we have a starting and, and growing population down in the south central Cascades, which is essentially in the western zone mm. of our state. Mm -hmm. So... The first question the commission had to make or address was, is that enough? A enough area for the yeah, wolf to well, live in? Yeah, well, enough to lift protection. Not enough for the, the wolf, but is it enough to lift the protections? Do they need those protections to continue to grow? Mm -hmm. So that's one, one of the, the decisions they made. The second one was a, an analysis that we conducted looking at the viability of, of our population. Our population is growing at about 43% per year, 41% per year. Um, on average, which is very quick, that's very a, similar to the great. to the northern Rocky Mountains. So, given that that growth pattern, mm -hmm. then what we did is we modeled a uh, what we did a viability what's called a viability analysis model. And really, what that is is a process of of sort of mathematically throwing all of these problems that might occur at wolves. What if there were disease outbreaks? What if there's a higher incidence of illegal take? Um, uh, what if the reproductivity of, of each pack declined? What if there was catastrophic events? You know, you're throwing a whole bunch of things at this population, and what you're trying to see is what is the effect? Is there, or what, what then is the chance or is there a chance that that population could fail? So we did this, and, and you, you reiterate that process many, many times with all these different scenarios. In the end, what we came out is that with that there's a very low percentage uh, risk of our population failing. And one of the main reasons for that is because it's growing so fast right now. 41%, yeah. It, it, you know, that, that growth rate, the growth rate that we're seeing is, is virtually analogous to the growth of wolves in the northern Rocky Mountains. In other words, Oregon's wolves are just about as successful as Idaho and Montana Wyoming's wolves. Here's the, the interesting thing about wolves. When, when you do all of that, you always have to come back to the reality about wolves. A, they're fairly simple animals. They're extremely successful and robust. In other words, they're so capable that it's pretty easy to get unrealistic, throwing these problems at the population, trying to see what the effect would be mathematically. Mm -hmm. Most of those problems just are not very realistic because wolves are doing so well. You Have know, that yes, they do get diseases, things like parvovirus or uh, some some of those, but typically those are local, short-lived and and every population of wolves has, has had parvovirus uh, just like domestic dogs do really um, and they seem to continue to grow so uh, I think things like that are, are you know to, to think that 
all of a sudden wolves are just going to go away uh, it would be it's very not un- realistic it's just all. not realistic not biologically or uh, the other thing it's not realistic from a management perspective you know it um there's no there's no management framework in place that is designed to make them go away anymore we we shouldn't forget i don't think we shouldn't forget our history wolves are very interesting because they're one of the few species that are that were on an endangered species list because we tacitly made them go away. We right. intentionally we made forced them, go away. them into it. Most endangered species are endangered because they either have a critical habitat component or they're sure. very specialized in their use of habitat or their their ecology. Or um, they're sensitive to very slight environmental changes. Precisely. Wolves are, are completely different in that they're not endangered or they weren't endangered because of any of those. They were simply endangered because we we targeted them for eradication and made that happen. So, so then the antithesis of that or the opposite of that is that now we're not doing that. Now we're not targeting them. We're actually providing conservation. Mm-hmm. And, and we're, so this, this very high growth rate of 41% a year that we've observed, we don't expect that to continue at that rate. But that in itself right now shows that in absence of these, these human pressures to get rid of the animal, they're actually doing quite they're, well. They're really successful, and, yeah. And I think that's probably the most important part of that whole analysis uh, is why it makes it you know, makes it pretty easy and was it was was a decision that that wasn't overly complex. It was just a, a social decision as much as anything. So do you have a story about a wolf success um, that, that is your favorite? Oh, yeah. yeah um, you know, we worked with a number of individual wolves. And, and one of the things that we as a wolf manager, we, we try not to get to personally involve with these, these are these are wildlife, and and they need to be wild. At, at the same time, you know, we do have stories that that and experiences that we've had with these. Most of those are related to capture. Um, I suppose one one in particular um, is the story of OR three. OR three is the the third radio collared wolf that we uh, or wolf that we ever radio collared in the state of Oregon, and. Uh, and it was a one of the male, a young male from the Amnaha pack. Um, that wolf was collared in 2010. In in 2011, that wolf uh, uh, dispersed from the Amnaha pack area, and we had at that time we didn't have a GPS collar on him. So he was also the first. I should add, he's the first wolf that I ever helicopter darted. So the first first animal I ever hit with a dart from the from the helicopter. So that was a bit of a of an exciting time as well, and he, he's very, uh, he, he was a very large and uh, and a quite beautiful wolf, actually. So what's what's a large wolf like? How big? One hundred and ten pounds is a large. Is <laughs> That's a large, a large wolf. wolf. Yeah. yeah, you know, while there's a lot of stories of wolves being, you know, uh, over one hundred and fifty pounds, or there actually has never been one measured or recorded or. Uh, at that weight that, that uh, in the lower 48 ever so uh, but 110 that's a pretty good size yeah 120 pound male is anything over that is extremely rare mm. um, we have not encountered that in Oregon um, 115 I believe is the largest that we have so okay. um, and most of our males are between 90 and 105 pounds Okay. I apologize. Sorry. Back uh, yeah, to yeah, no, no. So anyway, we sort of lost track of him. Uh, we couldn't find his collar and that happens uh, with collared animals. 
And uh, he showed up on a game camera uh, in Wheeler County uh, in the fall of 2010. Then uh, he showed up, uh, we picked up his signal near Prineville uh, in uh, 2011. So and then he had lost gone him. quite far for Yeah, so he was dispersed, which, which wolves do. They disperse very, very, they're incredibly capable of traveling large distances. And then, uh, and that was it. We never picked that wolf up again uh, until this summer when we got a, a photograph from a trail camera that was in the Southern Oregon Cascades, kind of in that area north of Crater Lake. Um, and, uh, and a person sent it to us saying, hey, do you recognize this wolf? Well, I do recognize it. And in fact, it's OR3. And so many, many years later, even after thinking that wolf is long gone or, or you know, not really knowing what happened to it, the wolf shows up. I think that was a pretty, pretty interesting story. So we actually have another wolf then in the Cascades. Mm-hmm. We've had a number of dispersing wolves go to that area okay. over the last few years. But that particular wolf is quite a story that he's, in fact, still around. And, and that and, you were able to follow his movements for... A few years at least. Yeah, and of course he's he's wearing a collar that doesn't function anymore. Uh, but but at least his presence there might give us some insight as to other other wolves. And who knows? Maybe he has a pack. Maybe he's already produced young and and things like that. So that's kind of part of the mystery and part of the things that that we have to continue to look for and try to find out. So how you were talking about radio collaring or three mm-hmm. using a helicopter? How do you? Is that how you typically well, collar we, wolves? Yeah, we capture wolves. Uh, both by helicopter darting and by what we refer to as foothold trapping. Um, and essentially, helicopter darting really successfully it requires that you have already trapped a, at least one wolf in that pack. You know, they're secretive large carnivores, so they're hard to find, and you really can't effectively dart them if you don't know where they are. So you need that, what we call a Judas wolf, to, to, to lead us to the pack, and we're able then to to, to the betrayal it. wolf. <laughs> yeah, so I had actually trapped the female uh, of the Amnaha pack first. Before OR3? Before OR3. So it was her collar then that allowed us to find the pack with the helicopter and dart more. So we we darted OR3 and OR4 and OR5. So you had three total wolves uh, collared in that pack? Uh, at that time, yeah, we've had as many as, uh, I believe, four or five at one time. And, of course, the wolves change, and they disperse and die, and colors fail, and things like that. So we've, we've the number varies all of the time, but I believe we've had as many as four. How how frequently do you go in and we try, we In our plan, it calls for maintaining or trying, attempting to maintain at least one collar uh, in each pack. So our, our goal is to have at least a collar in each wolf pack. That's not an easy task to do, and we have a number of uncollared packs. Um, as the number of packs increases, it's very difficult to keep one in each pack. Right. So what it does require, though, is that, yes, every year we try to make do tacit capture effort. Mm-hmm. Usually that involves in the spring and in the fall is when we do ground trapping, okay. uh, foothold trapping. Uh, and then most all of our helicopter darting is in the winter time in the snow. Wolves are in packs in the winter. They they uh, they tend to be out in lower elevation, open areas, and you really need that treeless area to to be able to helicopter dart. It's them. just better access. So in the summertime, they're like more in the tree area, so you can't really get exactly, to them. Exactly. Yeah, way. you can't dart wolves in in forest cover. Mm-hmm. And, and and oftentimes we go and make attempts to dart. Uh, from a helicopter and are not successful. So it's not an automatic thing. I think sometimes people uh, 
assume that anytime we want to have a, a collared animal, we can just go put a collar just on. Go but get it, one. but <laughs> in fact, it, it doesn't work that way. It, it there's there's a, a, a relatively good chance of, of failure each time we do this. It doesn't matter whether we're trapping or whether we're, we're helicopter darting. So each collared wolf represents a pretty significant amount of effort, uh, you know, regardless of the method that we use to do it. Mm-hmm. It represents a significant effort to, to get it that way. What's the lifespan of these radio collars? Um, anywhere from two to four years is uh, with our GPS collars that we use. Uh, uh, they, they have a high failure rate. Uh, you know, the, the GPS collars have, you know, they're a fairly sensitive electronic that is hanging on an animal that lives quite a rough lifestyle. Right. And so they they're fail. They're not taking care of it. <laughs> yeah. So some of the collars live their, their battery life out, which would be the three to four year time, and other collars fail at a much sooner rate. And that's because, you know, these wolves are, are constantly... Smashing uh, them on rocks Smashing, yeah, when they're chasing things or they're having animals kick at them when they're biting, things like that. And, and you know, and, and you've got this sensitive packet of electronics on the neck of, of an, an animal like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, do, they do fail. It's interesting that we have some of our wolves that are ex- notoriously hard on collars. We've recollared some of our wolves, oh, okay. recaptured them, recollared them, and they still fail. So it tells us that certain wolves have a rougher lifestyle than other wolves, even within the same pack. Um, alpha males, uh, which are a primary provider for any pack. They're, they're, uh, they're an important provider, and they sort of lead the, lead the effort, if you will, uh, especially at certain times of year. They seem to be very hard on these collars. Uh, how are the alpha males different than in their behavior than the females? Like, they're all out hunting at the same time, or do they have different jobs, or...? Well, at different times of the year, they're all hunting at the same time. At the same time, when they have, when, when there's during the denning season, when there's pups in the ground, the alpha male is really a primary provider for the female and those pups. Mm-hmm. And so he's really working hard. He's going out, he's feeding, he's bringing food back. Other wolves do the same, but he's much more regular. And our collar data has shown that consistently. So he becomes really the lifeline for that female because she right after she has pups she's pretty fixed to those pups into that site she doesn't leave and go out and hunt she stays right there and it's really him that is bringing in to a lesser extent some of the other wolves but he's a primary uh, transporter of, of food back to that den site mm. Um, and so that, and, and, be, and that's why we see virtually every year we see these males, um, they get really skinny. They look like track stars in the spring and summer because they're running and, and they're, they're really going. Moving. In the winter, they tend to be heavier. Wolves tend to be uh, much thicker and heavier and, and well-fed. In the spring, they, they are working very, very hard. So the pups are born in the springtime? Yeah, usually in April. Mm-hmm. How long... Uh, is it until they can become slightly more autonomous when they can go out and maybe not hunt, but at least? Yeah, usually by uh, late July, early August, when we'll see the pups start traveling with the, the group as a unit, with, as a pack. Um, they're really not f- providing much hunting capability, but that's certainly an important time where they learn to hunt. They're right. part of the hunts. They're watching part of what's the going kills, on. Uh, and and they, they, they really learn that. It really isn't until wolves are pups are about 10 months, 10, 11 months, that they're really capable of, of, uh, of kind of doing their own thing. Having said that, there are examples 
where where pups even four and five months old can function on their own. And there's been situations where uh, uh, where the adults have either been killed or something has happened, mm. and there's been examples where pups have survived. So I, I think you know I think there's a lot of adaptability. The norm would be, you know, they're not really effective hunters till they're ten months 10, old. 11. But if pressed, they they can be become uh, hunters earlier. So how long does a gray wolf like what what's their lifespan generally? Well, it's difficult to know in the wild all the time because most animals don't live their their biologically capable lifespan mm-hmm. as wild animals. We consider ten years old to be an old wolf. There's not a lot of wolves, I don't think, in most wolf populations that are older than ten years. We've got a few in Oregon that are approaching that, and and they look old. Uh, they gray up. Do they have gray muscles like <laughs> they dogs? Get, yeah, they do. Oh. A lot like people, you know, they get grayer and 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 more frail. And so, uh, and so we have some of those. We have alpha male of one of our packs is known to be nine years old. Oh no, so, kidding! Yeah, I was so. I was uh, thinking that because of the the lifestyle that the alpha males have to, you know, deal with with you know having to right. hunt and getting you know, chased by animals themselves and things like that, they would have a shorter lifespan. Well, and I think, and I think that they likely do and Mm -hmm. they mostly do, you know, the average wolf's life is about four to five years old. Oh, that's not very long. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, given mortalities, accidents, they break bones. You see wolves that are limping all the time Hmm. because they're smacking their feet on rocks and things as they're going on again. They live a very, very rough lifestyle. And so, so yeah, an old wolf is, is 10 years old and not a lot of them you know, reach that mark. So you have one nine-year-old wolf. Have you seen wolves older than that then? Like, have you um, seen a 10? Because we're still pretty new into it. No, no we really don't have. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there's some out there, but uh, but we just haven't. Uh, you know, that's that's the oldest collared wolf that we've, okay. we've known of. Is this wolf still in a pack? Yeah, he's still the breeding male. Yeah, no kidding. Four, yeah. Good for him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> OR4? Yep. Was O-R-4. he in the Imnaha? He is. He's the breeding male of the Imnaha pack and... and He's been, uh, every other member of the pack is different. He is the only member that is still the same. Even the breeding female, uh, original breeding female is gone. Okay. And now there's another one that's in her place, but he's still there. Was that original female the one that you initially had collared? It was, She was yeah, the Judas wolf for that one? Yeah, yeah. Or two, the second wolf we'd ever collared in Oregon was the female. And, and uh, she turned up gone... Uh, I believe three years ago. Okay. And since that time, we've been there's been another female. So we tend to view and people tend to talk about wolf packs as sort of this. They and they are kind of a family unit, much like humans. And because of that, we tend to sort of talk about them as this. The Imnaha pack, for example, is this this unit that doesn't really change. It might change mm-hmm. a little bit in numbers, but it it doesn't. Well, it actually does change, um, with the exception of that one breeding male. You know the pack is completely different than what it than what it once was, and so there, there's a lot of dynamic that occurs with wolf populations. Is that a lot of uh, wolves coming in, or is it more wolves dispersing? It's more of wolves dispersing. Okay. Not a lot of wolves. But we, wolves are extraordinarily territorial, and so not a lot of wolves just come into other packs. It does happen, hmm. but most packs are what we would refer to as extended family units. They consist of a breeding male, female, and and various young of, of different of, of one or more years. And so you have 
you might have a pack of nine animals that might represent young over two or three years and and the young just continue to 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 leave they go off to to other parts that's what the natural and, and what we call dispersal mm-hmm. um, and then occasionally the breeders are are also replaced or they get in you know they fight the wolves also kill each other sure and so there's a lot of that um so OR4 is eventually going to be replaced by some other male, probably coming in from a different pack. Yeah, yeah, he sure will. Yeah, <clears throat> and, and every year I, I always say I won't be surprised if he's gone. When he's gone. Because that's just kind of how it works. Yeah. But, uh, and whether another male comes in or the pack kind of fizzles and, and starts other packs, you, you really can't predict that. Um, but, you know, he the pack's still there now and largely, blight, I think, because he's been... He's been the, the, the breeding male of that pack. Interesting. Um, well, thank you, listeners, for tuning in. And thank you so much, Russ, for talking with us. This was a great conversation. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. 